All right. Good to see everybody this evening. We don't have any bad weather. We don't have any other problems, so we're back to Bible class as usual. Uh, two quick announcements. First of all, uh, and we've done this three or four times, so they may be all gone by now, but there are free Christian music CDs in the fellowship area, and if you want one, take as many as you would like. Second, uh, on June the 19th, at 7.30 a.m., we will have our men's prayer breakfast. So this is a great time. Uh, men, bring your sons if, they're, if, that, if that's appropriate. And it's a great time to uh, have some true biblical fellowship around uh, good food and around the Word. So uh, plan, plan on that. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord. Commit your way to him, and uh, he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we open God's word this evening, let's make sure we're spiritually prepared And that means that we just need to take the time to confess sin if necessary. And that simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to the Lord, and instantly we're forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Before we pray, uh, we need to be in prayer for the Williamson family, Uh, John Williamson, uh, his brother David, sister Sarah, and other sister, Rebecca, uh, lost their father. Their father went to be with the Lord on Monday a week ago, and they did not discover him until Sunday night. And so um, it's he was 64, had no known conditions or anything, so it was quite a shock and surprise to the family. So please uh, be, be in prayer. Uh, for them as they are um, dealing with all the various administrative things and everything else that you have to do at a time like this. So uh, be sure to take them before the Lord. All right, let's uh, bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have you to come to, that at times of loss, at times when someone suddenly dies or many other problems that may suddenly come into our lives that uh, are unexpected and shake things up quite a bit, we know that you are in control and that this is part of your permissive will and you allow these things to happen just as you allowed the uh, all of the various uh, pagan tribes, Canaanite tribes in Israel to survive in order to test Israel. We have these tests in our life, and they're designed to teach us to trust you, to rely upon you. And even though we may grieve and even though we may have various uh, emotional responses to situations that happen, we know that we trust in you. And we know we live in a fallen world, so there will always be loss. There will always be difficulties and problems and heartaches, but we trust in you and we are able to go through the testing because of the way you enable us and strengthen us 
to persevere in the situation. So, Father, we pray for the Williamson family. We pray that you would strengthen them. They're all believers. They all know you. They know the word. And that this would be a good time for and a profitable time for their spiritual growth as well as a testimony uh, about the gospel. And, Father, we pray for us as we study your word tonight that we may be able to focus and concentrate and come to understand your purposes in human history as the things that we can learn from this time of the judges. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Judges, Judges chapter 3, and we are continuing our, our study. Tonight what we're going to look at is these tribes, these lists of tribes that are given in verse 3 and verse 5. And unfortunately, usually when we come to some of these verses, we gloss over them as pastors because it's just a list of names and nobody seems to ever do the research behind them. And so since I figure some of you may need some extra sleep tonight, uh, we're going to be uh, studying about the uh, Perizzites and Carathites and Girgashites and Amalekites and all of the others and um, understand that the they all have a purpose. And if we believe that every word is inspired of God, that it's not just there for us to glaze over, which I know we do. We all do. I do. Um, we see that. And we say, okay, there's that list of names I don't really need to pay attention to. And we move on to the next verse. But they're there for a reason and even though it may not be the most significant thing that's going to change your spiritual life or give you a spiritual ecstasy or lift you up closer to the third heaven, it is important just so we have a greater understanding when we read God's Word. So we're going to look at these tribes, these enemies uh, that God allowed to stay in the land of Israel for testing in these first uh, six verses in chapter 6. And we may, if the Lord allows, get down into verse 7, making progress. And that will just simply be an introduction to the first judge that we come to in Judges. So again, so you remember this, the we are still in the introduction where we learn how Israel went from spiritual victory to spiritual defeat, how they went from a nation that was focused on the Lord and they had sworn that they would follow him and serve him to where they are serving the idols made of wood, stone, and metal, and they were in spiritual darkness, and eventually they are living uh, worse than the tribes that were surrounding them. We see that this affects the leadership, and in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the biblical standards, Old Testament standards for uh, for leadership, and recognizing that, uh, with the possible exception of Othniel, all of the others had flaws, some serious flaws. But when God is dealing with a nation that is in uh, a spiritual regression and has been uh, completely uh, influenced by the pagan culture around them, he meets us where we are and provides leaders that will uh, be able to accomplish his will, 
but they may not be the prettiest and they may not be the most spiritually mature. They may not be spiritually focused, but they are the leaders that God has put there. And some are there for testing because of their, let's be kind, because of their uninformed and uh, ignorant policies. Others are more evil in their intent in terms of the destruction of the culture. And others are just being, um, I believe, based on information that I've read, I think there are some that are being blackmailed, others that are being uh, intimidated and extorted. And as a result of that, we see, that's the only way we can explain how many are elected on one platform, and this has been their focal point for most of their life, and then all of a sudden they seem to be going against it at critical times. So we we really need to be in a lot of prayer for our country, but we understand that what is going on in our country is not something new in the history of the world or in the history of Christianity, that man is... Uh, corrupt inside because of sin, and when the grace of God is not appropriated to strengthen us and to lift us up to a higher plane than the pagan culture of the world, then we are going to see what every other culture sees. We have been blessed so much by God in the last 300 years, the last 400 years in this country that we have forgotten that this is a historical bubble. And now it looks like we will be like all the other nations of the world. And that's sad for most of us because we've seen much greater days. And we know that uh, God can turn things around if he desires. It may not be easy. It could be simple. One never knows. We have seen ups and downs throughout the history of Israel, depending on who the leader was. And so we just need to continue to be in prayer, realizing that this is ultimately a spiritual battle, that it is always a spiritual battle, that no matter what the politicians say or what many pastors may say or what others say, it is ultimately a battle in the heavenlies, between the angels who have given their allegiance to Satan and those who have given their allegiance to God. And God is in control, but he is working out his purposes in relation to this angelic revolt. And our job is to carry out our mission like any good soldier. The third area is the paganization of the priests as well as the people. The whole culture gets corrupted because of sin. And so tonight we're going to reach the end of the introduction. Last time we focused on what the Bible teaches about the standards for leaders, primarily focusing on the Old Testament passage of Exodus 18.21, where we looked at those uh, those qualifications as an able man or a, someone who is capable, someone who has integrity, someone who knows how to get the job done. Uh, he also spiritually is someone who fears God, that has a high respect for God, knows the word, internalizes the word, and is focused on serving God. Uh, he is a man of truth, uh, he has integrity, and hates covetousness. And those qualifications are not fulfilled 
by most of those judges in this time period. So we go to Judges 3.1, and we read, now these are the nations. So it hasn't told us what they are yet. He's about to tell us in verse 3. These are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. And what he is saying here is that God is going to leave them there to test them. First of all, as we've studied, this is designed to produce spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, to learn that we can't solve our problems on our own, but we must trust in the sufficiency of God's grace and sufficiency of the cross, sufficiency of Christ. There is no doctrine that has been more abused, ignored, and trashed in the last 50 or 60 years than this doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ. There are pastors and theologians and seminaries that look to psychology. They look to sociology. They look to uh, various uh, polls and trends and everything else in order to determine what they should do in a church rather than looking at the Word of God. There is only one thing that will change human beings and transform them, and that is, first of all, the gospel, and secondly, the Word of God strengthened by the power of the Spirit of God. And that's what we have studied so many, many times. But that's the only thing that's going to solve the problems. Everything else is just a Band-Aid. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It is just a Band-Aid. Do not psychologize sin. That what That is exactly what Sigmund Freud bequeathed to Western civilization, is an interpretation of our flaws as something having to do with parents, or sex, or something else, anything but sin. And once sin is removed from the equation, you cannot find a solution because ultimately every problem is a spiritual problem. So God left these nations that he might test Israel for their spiritual growth And in relation to the fact that there would be battles with these people, so they had to learn the principles of the uh, of the war, of the uh, learning how to trust God for the victory. And so, either they trusted God and they would realize the victory and enjoy the blessing that would be the result of that victory, or they would fail to trust God and they would become. Uh, conquered by the enemy, and they would be vanquished, and they would be enslaved by the enemy. And that's what we'll begin to see uh, as we finish this, this introduction. So those are the options. God has to leave them there to train them, just as God leaves us in this fallen world, in the devil's world, with the sin nature, so that we have to face those three enemies of the world, the flesh, that is the sin nature, and the devil, because that is how we learn to grow. Uh, there are numerous passages, James 1, 2 through 4 is one of my favorite, that we must endure in times of testing because that is the basis for our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. But we have to know the Word of God. It is a testing of our faith. And by that, it is not talking about uh, uh, our ability to believe, but the content of our faith 
our, what we believe and how to apply it to these circumstances. And in verse 2, we read, This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, which was all of them. Okay, this goes back to... Um, Verse 22, where God said that through them I may test, that is, through these nations. Now, on this slide, which wasn't animated as I thought it was, um, we read, now these are the nations. And then there's the reason for the nation's survival given in the rest of verse 1, the explanation in the parentheses. And then verse 3 identifies them. There are... Five. They are the, uh, there are the five lords of the Philistines, or actually four, the five lords of the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. Pop quiz. Where's Sidon? Where's Baal Hermon? Where's Hamath? Did anybody ever look any of those places up? There's a wonderful tool on the Dean Bible Ministries website. And you can click on the link and go in and you can put into the search window any city, town, geographical location in Israel, and it'll take you right to that on the map. It's a, it's a fabulous tool, and there's a lot of places. There are some places it won't take you anywhere because we really don't know where it is, but uh, it's a great tool, and that's an important part of, of Bible study. So we have these four are mentioned specifically as those who would test Israel. Now, does that raise any questions in anybody's mind? Where are the Moabites? No, the second the, the second nation that that oppresses them is going to be uh, going to be Eglon the king of Moab how come the Moabites remember Eglon when we get there we'll be looking at why how uh, lefty killed fatty in the in the outhouse you'll never forget that after I said that so Moabites aren't there the Midianites that's who Jephthah goes against are the Midianites the Ammonites now they're uh, they're mentioned uh, in Judges uh, chapter eleven with Jephthah. They're not mentioned. Isn't that interesting? I don't have the answer to the question. I was hoping somebody here did. But uh, that, that's interesting. We have these listed now. The Philistines are because the second the second judge that we're talk, talking about Shamgar is going to uh, slaughter a bunch of Philistines with an ox goad. And that's about all that's said of him. Then we get to the last judge, and that's uh, Samson, or Shimshon. And Samson is going to have a number of problems with the Philistines and eventually kill uh, a whole bunch of them in the temple of Dagon. But... um, Generally, these others are just kind of subsumed under the name of the Canaanites, and we'll get to that in just a minute. And then we have a second group 
that is given in verse 5, thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So we need to at least come to a basic understanding of who these people are. And the first group is for testing, and the second group is a more immediate problem. These are the ones that they're really living with and rubbing shoulders with and working with on a day-to-day basis, whereas the other ones, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites who dwell in Mount Lebanon and uh, from Mount Baal, Hermon to the entrance of Hamath, they're on the borders of the land mostly. So they're, they're extern, more external enemies, whereas the others in verse 5 are more internal enemies. So we'll uh, build a chart here looking at Judges 3, uh, 3 and 5. We've got primarily the Philistines, Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the, and the Hivites. But this isn't the first time that this group of uh, of enemies, these these tribes who inhabited the land that God promised to Israel, this isn't the first time they show up. So we need to turn back to the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, Genesis chapter 10, in order to find out who some of these people are. You can't understand what's going on with the Canaanites if we don't go back to G- Genesis chapter not actually chapter 9 and 10 is how we learn who these these Canaanites uh, really are. So in Genesis chapter 9, I'm just going to hit this very uh, uh, superficially. Noah had planted a vineyard and he drank the wine that it produced. Now, he he is knowledgeable about wine. He is knowledgeable about fermentation. And so it, this, but he just drank too much. I know that probably never happened to anybody here. And he got drunk and goes, in, and he lies, probably collapsed and passed out on his bed uh, naked. And Ham, he has three sons, remember, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. So the text makes the point that it's not Ham that this application is focused on. It is his son, Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And Shem and Japheth show respect for their father. That's all that's going on here. There, there A lot of people want to read some kind of of inappropriate uh, sexual tones to this, but it's not that way. It's in the in the ancient world, uh, you didn't go about unclothed. You know, they would be astonished to see people wearing shorts and and t-shirts and no t-shirt or whatever today. Uh, they would cover up, so it was a sign of of disrespect to have to laugh at him or. Uh, make fun of him in his uh, drunken, naked condition. And so they, um, the two brothers, Shem and Japheth, uh, understand the correct protocol and show respect, and they take a blanket and they walk backwards and drape it over and cover the nakedness of their father and so that they do not look upon that. That would be a sign of great disrespect. 
And when Noah woke up, he knew what his younger son had done to him. So apparently he probably came to in and out, and uh, Ham is making fun of him. But he doesn't curse Ham. A lot of people have made the mistake here. This has been a passage that has been abused terribly to justify racism as the Hamites are the ones who are cursed. Ham is not cursed. He's not blessed, but he's not cursed. And there are those who say, see, Ham is the progenitor of those who were in, lived in Africa. He's the progenitor of Asians. He's the progenitor of, 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 of even the Philistines. Although they're, we'll get to the Philistines later, they're kind of a, a mixed bag. But uh, he is the progenitor for the Egyptians. He's the progenitor for the Africans. He's the progenitor for uh, 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 Asians. And so they're not all cursed, but they're not blessed. But they're not cursed. The curse goes to his grandson, Canaan. Now, why is that? is because he sees that this trait of the sin nature of disrespect and uh, the lasciviousness and the licentiousness and everything is going to particularly characterize the descendants of Canaan who are the Canaanites in the uh, land of Israel. And so he makes this uh, prophecy in verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. So he's the only one who's getting any kind of judgment announced on him. That's what a curse is. It's not juju black magic where they're going to announce some sort of uh, mystical brew with toads and lizards' tails and everything else and cast a curse on somebody or a spell. It is an announcement of a judgment and that it would be upon Canaan a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, that is Noah said, verse 26, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. So Shem is singled out as one who is particularly spiritually focused, that he is a worshiper of Yahweh. What's interesting is that if you trace out the um, the chronology of the ages of the sons of Noah, that Shem does not die if there are no gaps, and I don't believe there are gaps in the genealogy, and the uh, ancient rabbis did not believe such either, that uh, Shem does not die until uh, Abraham is about 160 years old. And that the Jewish rabbinical tradition is that Melchizedek, which is not a name but a title, the king of righteousness, was Shem. And so they, they, the implication there is that Shem, who is the last one probably surviving from the antediluvian world when he is giving the bread and the wine to Abraham, is passing on uh, the tradition. You see a changing of the guard from the old antediluvian pre-flood era to the uh, post-diluvian uh, era. But he says, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. That is not talking about the slavery of black Africans as it was so often distorted to mean in the 18th and 19th centuries. It is talking about the Canaanites 
being the servants of a servant of servants to uh, to uh, 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 God of Shem. May Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, which is a phrase that indicates blessing him and making him prosperous. Now, who are the descendants of Japheth? Basically, the Indo-Europeans are the descendants of Japheth. Now, who are the Indo-Europeans? Well, one of the tribes that we see listed here are the Hittites. The Hittites lived in the area of what we call uh, Turkey today, modern Turkey, uh, which was Asia Minor. Uh, that is the area that, that where, where the Hittites lived, but they died out, or their empire died out by about the 12th century, uh, 11th century B.C. You also have the Persians are Indo-European. Uh, the Indians, dark-skinned Indians, are also Indo-European. That's where we get the I-N-D relates to that. Uh, those who are from European d- extraction, those who are Germans, are those who are Slavs, Russia, not Slavs, Slavs. Those who are uh, from Eastern Europe, Western Europe, the British, the French, the, who are all descendants of the Gauls and the Goths and the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and you know everybody else who wore black eyeshadow and black lipstick, and that's how they invaded the West. Anyway, uh, you get the idea that this is that everybody they are the Western civilization is prophesied by Noah to be the prosperous benefactor of the rest of the world. Think about that in light of this anti-European, anti-Western civilization mentality that we have in the world today. Isn't that interesting? This, we have to interpret what is going on today in light of this biblical prophecy. It's very interesting to, to look at history through the lens of these two verses. And God says that, that may God enlarge or prosper Japheth, and may he, that is the descendants of Japheth, dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, he's not talking about all of the Shemites, because the Arabs are also descendants of Shem, specifically talking about Israel and the uh, religion of Israel, the religion of the Old Testament, the worship of the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And may Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. So it's indicating that Japheth is the one who is going to be provided for, protected, that's what a tent does, protects us from the external elements by, by the descendants of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. So Canaan, that, that is said twice. It's said in verse 26. It's said in verse 27. But that is not, Canaan is not black-skinned. He is not an African. He was a, a Middle Easterner. The Canaanites were, were Middle Easterners. And so this is not talking at all about and cannot be used to justify any kind of slavery whatsoever. And it only applied to the Canaanites who basically disappear as an ethnic group by the uh, 11th or 10th century B.C. You just don't hear of them being mentioned again. And so that is that they are removed at that time. So it doesn't apply to anybody on the, on the modern scene whatsoever. Okay, so let's then look at 
uh, Genesis chapter 10. The early, earliest mention of all these tribes is in Genesis chapter 10. And if you look at Genesis t- chapter 10, it's a genealogy, one of those chapters that a lot of people just skip over when they're doing their Bible reading, thinking they can either catch up or get ahead, because this is just a list of names. But if you study this, it, it's fascinating to study all these things. And these are the names, the historical names of antiquity that are used and applied in, for example, in Ezekiel 37 and 38, you have mention of Tubal and Meshach and uh, Magog and Gog and Magog. You have these terms show up in a number of prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. And you have to start here to understand who these people are. And it's a fascinating study. If you remember Alan Ross, who spoke at the uh, Chafer Conference uh, March a year ago and got out of town just ahead of the shutdowns with, with COVID, uh, wrote his uh, doctoral dissertation at Dallas Seminary on this chapter on the Table of Nations, and it's just fascinating uh, to read this. He wrote about 500 pages analyzing this, and it's a, a, a fascinating study. So you have the sons of Japheth and the descendants into the basic broad tribal groups in verses 2 through 5, Then in verse 6, it says the sons of Ham, and you see the descendants of Ham uh, listed uh, uh, following uh, that from verse 6 down to verse 20. Those are the sons of Ham. So a lot of focus on the descendants of Ham, and a good chunk of it is based on Canaan, the descendants of Canaan from verse 15 down to 21. You have then the sons of Shem listed. These are the true Shemites, even though that word has been taken, uh, changed to Semites, and that is primarily applied to uh, the descendants here of Eber and down through Abraham and the Jewish people. So let's just look at what we see at the very beginning, uh, starting in verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush. Mitzrayim, that's the Hebrew name for Egypt. So the Egyptians are descendants of Ham. Put, that's Libya and Canaan. So those are the four main sons of Ham. Everybody comes to them. And then he go, he's going to list the descendants of Cush. And then in, uh, Cush is going to begot, uh, give birth to Nimrod in verse 8. And Nimrod is a mighty hunter bef- against God. He's the one who establishes an empire out of Babylon, and Nimrod is an evil, evil uh, man and a founder of empire uh, against God in Babylon, which is always a city set against God in the Scripture. And then we we read down to about verse 15, and that's where we get uh, to Canaan. So Canaan begot Sidon. Who's Sidon? What's, that, what's name for Sidon? Well, we're going to see that Sidon is one of those nations listed in uh, uh, Judges 3, 3, 3, and that is part of Phoenicia, or the northwest of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean. The uh, people of Tyre and Sidon had a virtual monopoly on the trade the mercantile trade on the seas, on the Mediterranean, and during the heyday of those 
uh, of their empire and their trade. Uh, there is evidence that they made it to North America. They made it to South America. They made it around the Horn of Africa and uh, as far away as India. And they had a, a, a monopoly on, on this trade. But they were not only exporting goods, they were exporting Baalism and fertility worship. And that went with their goods. So they had an evil influence through, throughout the world. So his first son is Sidon, and then Heth. Now Heth is the progenitor of the Hittites. We'll talk about the Hittites a little bit later. He's a progenitor of the Hittites. And then you have the Jebusites. The rest are just listed in terms of their tribal names. The Jebusites, those are the ones who settled in in Salem. Uh, It was originally called the city of Jebus for the Jebusites, and then they uh, it becomes Salem. Uh, Melchizedek is the king priest of Salem, and then we know it as Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So you have a Canaan uh, begot his uh, Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, the Hamathites, and afterward the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. See, that relates to the judgment on on the Canaanites. Now, I've underlined a few of these because these are the primary ones. Sidon is significant throughout Israel's history, an external enemy and at times an ally. Uh, the Hittites, and you have those who are in um, uh, Hittites who live in Israel, but those are um, a little bit uh, a, a little bit later on. You have the uh, Hivites. We'll talk about them in a minute, uh, all the way down. And in verse 19, we read, and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon. So that marks the northern extremity. Don't worry, we'll have a map in a minute. The border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar as far as Gaza. So Sidon in the north, Gerar, which is uh, one of the uh, Philistine cities, not one of their five cities, but it's a Philistine city down toward Gaza, which is where we have the Gaza Strip today. That's where the city of Gaza is. That's the same city. Uh, then to the east, as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, going to the south, and the furthest south is uh, Lasha. And we have uh, don't have really any good idea where Lasha was located. Now that list... The list, rather, in Judges uh, uh, 3, 3, is different from other lists. In the Abrahamic Covenant, there are 11 different people groups that are mentioned as God is giving instructions related to the Abrahamic Covenant to Abraham. So we see that in Genesis chapter uh, 15, 16, but God tells Moses that in the future, your descendants are going to go down to Egypt, but then in the fourth generation, so that's where it starts, in the fourth generation they shall return here to the land because at that point Abram was living in the land. Uh, he shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is going to give them a lot of grace, 
until they abuse it to the point where they will be uh, they will be destroyed. The Amorites, those are mentioned here, and they are a significant uh, people group. Uh, then we have on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, and that is not the Nile. There is a special term that is used for the Nile. The word that is translated river is a word that is uh, usually translated river or wadi, and this is the Wadi El Arish, which is up on the uh, not too far south of Gaza and south of Kadesh, or it's it's, uh, it's above Kadesh Barnea. How do we know that? How do we know that? Because when the Israelites come to Kadesh Barnea, which is just south, for those of you who went to Israel, when we went to Mizpah Ramon. It's it's about twenty miles south of there. Because when they were camped in Kadesh Barnea, God said, send 12 spies into the land. Well, if Kadesh Barnea was inside, the, was inside the land, God wouldn't say send 12 spies into the land. They were still outside the land. So it can't be the Nile, which is what a lot of people think. Uh, so it is from the Wadi El Arish up all the way through Syria all the way to the great river Euphrates, and then mentions all these groups, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim. These are giants. Uh, also, uh, Rephaim, the Amorites. Again, we see them mentioned. The Canaanites, which is sort of a broad term for all these different groups, but it also refers to a specific ethnic subset. The Girgashites and the Jebusites. So we have in Judges 3, 3, four groups, Philistines, Canaanites, Sidonians, Hivites. They're also up in the north. And Genesis lists all of these, these others that are not mentioned in Judges at all. Then we move forward. You might want to turn in your Bible, highlight all of this important information. Deuteronomy 7, 1. Moses says to the people, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you. Well, what are those nations? Well, he lists some. He lists six, the Hittites, or seven. He lists the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations greater and mightier than you. So these seven nations, we uh, haven't said a lot about them yet. I'm just, I'll get to that. But the Hittites were north. They had during this time, this is 1400 B.C. This is sort of in the middle of the period when the Hittites have their great empire from about the 16th century down to about the 12th century. And then the Girgashites, and I haven't found a whole lot of information upon them. The Amorites, we'll talk about them some more. The Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So this is a different list from those that are in 7.1, um, but they do have uh, an overlap. What's interesting is we look at, ch- excuse me, chapter 1. When we look at chapter 1, the enemies, those, the people that are really identified in chapter 1, are. Go, you can go back and read it. You have those who lived in certain towns mentioned, but when you get a tribal name, it's the Canaanites 
And then when you get to the end in Judges 134, it's 134 is the Amorites, 135 and the Amorites. And then you get down to 136. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim. I had to figure out what that was. So that actually means uh, the pass of the scorpions, or I think it's better, it's scorpion pass. And that probably relates to a place where they were, def- where somebody was defeated and the enemy was viewed as being like scorpions. So that's, so in the first chapter, you basically the focus is the two big terms, Canaanites and Amorites. So this is, this is how it lays out. So in each of these places, you just see different, different groups. Now, what I want to do at this point is just focus on, uh, on a few of these groups and find out who, who they were. For example, the Canaanites. When you see in some of these passages, it talks about all of the, all the Canaanites, it indicates that this is a term that applied to all of the inhabitants of uh, the land in general. And it would include many of these other subgroups. And actually, that's what we see when we're in Genesis 10. We read Canaan begot. So these are descendants of Canaan as, uh, as their progenitor, Sidon. So the Sidonians, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, Arvidites, Amorites, they're all descendants of Canaan. So his name is sort of generally applied to all of those different uh, different ethnic uh, groups. When we look at the Canaanites, here's a general map. I'll get, have this sort of out of order right now. Uh, this is just the Levant, which is the correct term for the uh, eastern end of the Mediterranean. Egypt is down here in the south. And you see the Nile, which flows from south to north, and this is the Nile Delta here. And it's up in this general area where you have Goshen, which is where the Israelites lived during their slavery in Egypt. And then this little pointy thing here, that's the Sinai Peninsula, named for the fact that this is called the desert or the wilderness of Sin. And then you come up to this area, which is uh, the area of Israel, the promised land, the land that the southern part, Judea, the northern part, Samaria. And you can see a couple of places to point out here. Here is Tyre and here is Sidon. So they're up on that coast of what, what is today Lebanon and what in the ancient world was Phoenicia. The area back inland going towards Damascus and going all the way over here towards the Euphrates River, all of this territory going up here just north of Antioch, Edessa up here, all of this territory is part of uh, of modern Syria. And then this area up here, this was a, taken from New Testament. It's the only map I had that could show you Crete, and we'll come back to that later. So this is the area that was the center of the Hittite empire in the, in the, ancient, uh, in the ancient world. So as they came in, I said you have Gerard down here. This is down in the Gaza Strip area. Uh, that was the uh, extremity 
of the Canaanites and the map. I couldn't get it all on here, so the southern part down to the uh, Gulf of Aqaba isn't there, but that's how far south it went. And then it went all the way to the north. All of this territory here was generally referred to as Canaan. And that was, is, is documented in ancient Hittite documents that we found, ancient Assyrian documents that we found, Egyptian documents, and it all uses various, various uh, forms uh, of, that, of that name. So the Canaanites, let's just talk about them a minute. The Canaanites are named from their uh, progenitor, uh, Canaan, and it's possible that that there's a wordplay going on here. A lot of the names, like like uh, Yaakov as heel grabber, a lot of the names uh, in Hebrew aren't are, sound like another word, and so they'll say, "Well, Yaakov means heel grabber, Yitzhak means laughter," and it's close enough in the way it's spelled and sound as to where these two words uh, sort of overlap. So. Uh, some people think that uh, Canaanite is a word that basically meant uh, meant a Phoenician. Some believe that some archaeologists have believed that it comes from the root word related to this mollusk from which they would get the purple dye and for which they were uh, quite well known. However, that is somewhat uh, somewhat challenged today. Although for much of the 20th century. That was a, a, a primary view. Uh, some found a word similar, kenahu, in the Nuzi text that means purple. And so for many years, one of the big names in archaeology is William F. Albright, middle 20th century. And so he, um, uh, there are many who t- thought that and um, uh, thought, Albright thought that the name was was Hurrian. Now we're going to Hurrian is spelled H U R R I A N, and they were another people group. But they don't they're not mentioned in the Bible, so I'm not taking a lot of time there. But it's possible, maybe very likely, that Shamgar's name is Hurrian. I'll get to that when we get to that lesson. But that's a good background. And so Albright thought that Canaan was a Hurrian word that meant the land of the purple. But as I said, that view is not popular today. It's uh, been somewhat uh, uh, debunked, but then the result is nobody has a clue what the word comes from or what the word means. That's scholarship for you. Then you have the Perizzites who lived uh, in the land, often overlapping with those who are called Canaanites, And it could simply describe a person who lived in the open country or in unfortified towns and and villages. And so it seems like the the Perizzites occupied uh, the area that was, um, uh, for example, the forested area that was uh, not in the hills, whereas the Canaanites seem to be those who are associated with the large cities. So the Perizzites lived more rurally, and the Canaanites uh, were the um, uh, were the farmers, the, those who were living out in the rural areas. And then we come to the, the to the Cana- to the Philistines, who are mentioned. And uh, if you're still, I didn't tell you to change yet, but if you're still in uh, Genesis ten fourteen, and I do, don't have a slide on this, Genesis ten fourteen says. Uh, 
well, we'll start in 13, Mitzrayim, that's Egypt. Mitzrayim begot the uh, Ludim, Anamim, the Lehabim, the Naphtuhim, and then verse 14 is where we're going, the Pathrusim and Kasluhim. From whom? From the Kasluhim came the Philistines and the Kaphtarim. Now that's important because that tells you that they are from Mitzrayim and that Mitzrayim is the second son of Ham. So that the Philistines identified here are, um, are Hamitic. They are not Japhitic. And you say, well, Robbie, everybody, every scholar says that the Philistines are Greek sea peoples. Yeah, I'll tell you why. You look at this map over here. It is, um, it is pretty well determined that, the, that Kaftor or the Kaftorim is the island of Crete. That's pretty much not debated, accepted by everybody. And so it seems like as Noah's sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons are spreading out, that the, the Kaftorim end up settling in Crete. Then you fast forward about six or seven or eight centuries, and you have over the period from about oh somewhere around the thir- uh, around 1400 to about uh, a, a thousand BC, you have various migrations of different Greek people coming down from Greece and from Western Turkey, and they're going down and establishing colonies down in Crete. And so they're intermarrying with the original Kaftorim, who are, who are Philistines, and basically pick up that name for them. But they are the Greek sea peoples. And then they are going to establish other colonies, and they're going to go over here, and they're going to establish uh, colonies in Sidon and Tyre and further south with the five cities of the, of the Philistines, uh, which, which are Ashkelon and Ashdod and Ekron and Gaza and Gath, where Goliath was from. Those, that's the Pentopolis. There's five of them, and in Greek that would be identified as a Pentopolis. And so by, by about the time the Israelites are conquering here, the, these Greek sea peoples are beginning to make their migrations. And another group goes all the way to the western Mediterranean, and they establish Carthage, which, of course, is a uh, major uh, empire that competes with Rome and uh, has wars with them, the Punic Wars, and that's the story of Hannibal crossing the Alps with his elephants and uh, that takes place later, but they were the same ethnic group as the Philistines. And so the Philistines are, are Greek sea peoples, and you have them, they love to fight, but they didn't like fighting in big armies. They would send out champions. And so about the same time that you have David and Goliath, you have, you have the Trojan Wars, and you have the Greeks who are outside of Troy, and they call for the Trojans to send their champion out, and the Greeks send their champion out, and whoever uh, wins that fight between the two wins the battle. And that is how they would do things, and that is what happens with the Philistines and with Goliath and Gath. They, they're just demonstrating. They have this, uh, th- this whole 
uh, Greek culture. So that's where they, uh, they derive, and that's why you have Greek sea peoples become known as Philistines is because they, they mix everything up when they're, uh, when they're in Crete. So this is the, the land, and this is where they settle. This is the Pentopolis down here. You probably don't have good enough eyes to read it. It's Gaza, and that's the only one of these five cities that is not Israeli. The others are all Israeli, and you heard their names probably while you were listening to reading about uh, the war uh, this, with Hamas down there in Gaza just last week. That's one of the reasons it's good to go to Israel is you come back and you actually know what the articles are talking about when you, um, when you read them and you can envision it. Because I'd like to, if I can, take a group down uh, along the border. We don't do that on every trip. I've only been able to do that a couple of times, but it's very, very interesting. So you have Ashkelon here and Ashdod here, and over here is Gath where Goliath was from and Ekron. Uh, that's the cities of, uh, of the Philistines. And then the Hivites are all the way up here because this area right in here, this you can see on the topographical map here, this ridge line here, right here is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the tallest peak in Israel. There's snow there, and you can go skiing there in the winter if you're of a mind to. So that's something you probably never think about or envision in Israel is people skiing down the slopes of Mount Hermon. But the Hivites are all this territory from uh, the edge of Phoenicia or modern Lebanon over towards Damascus and north to Hamath, which is, which is off the map. So in Judges 3-4, we're told they're left in order to test the people in their obedience to the Lord. So this is, this is the group, but it's these four that are specifically spelled out. They are external uh, enemies uh, of Israel. Now let's, let's turn back to that passage, to our passage in Judges chapter 3, and I'll just touch on a couple of things as a preview of coming uh, coming at, at, attractions. We get down here and you read in verse 6 there, what was destructive for the culture. They took their, they meaning the Israelites, took their daughters, that is the daughters of these Canaanite tribes, to be their wives and gave their daughters, the, the uh, Israel's daughters, to their sons and they served their gods. And this word for serving the gods doesn't just mean they went there on a particular day of the week and had a sacrifice and went home and had Sunday dinner or something like that. Uh, this is much more intense than that. When you are a servant of Yahweh, that's only applied to a couple of people in the Old Testament. This indicates someone who is a significantly obedient servant of God. And so when you see this phrase that they serve the Baals and the Asherim, they are under subjugation. You could even translate it enslaved because it's a false religion. They're walking in darkness and they're enslaved uh, by this, by this uh, false religion because it appeals to the baser instincts of their, of their sin nature, the basic, the, lusts of their of their sin nature and so they serve their gods and the result of this is that they are uh, uh, 
they they are destroyed from the inside uh, from the inside out. And so I want to look at one passage before we close, and that's in Malachi 2. Now, if you go to Matthew and back up one book, you'll find Malachi. He's the Italian prophet, uh, Malachi, and you'll find him here. And this is, this is after the Israelites have returned from the uh, from the Babylonian captivity, and they're resettling in the land. Now, how many came back? We go to Ezra, and you realize that there were about three different groups that came back at different times, and there's only about, at the most by this time, maybe maybe 50 or 60,000. It's not a huge number of Jews who have returned to the land. Most of them, even at the time of Jesus, most of the Jews were still living outside the land. Today we have almost 50%, I think it's just under 49% of the number of Jews in the world live in Israel. That's never before happened, not even close. Not since 722 B.C. has there been this many Jews living in the promised land of Israel. And I think that is uh, significant. So if we look at um, Malachi chapter 2, go down to verse Verse 14, what has happened is when they came back from, um, from the Babylonian captivity, go to Matthew 2.10. Uh, when they came back from the Babylonian captivity, what did they do? They hooked up with all of these pagan women that they saw and vice versa, the men marrying the pagan women and the uh, women marrying pagan men, and this is going to destroy the the uh, integrity of God's chosen people, their their ethnic integrity as descendants of Abraham. And so this is that same kind of sin that happened when, remember, we studied this with Balaam and his ass and the attempts to, to, to uh, curse uh, Israel, and it was shown that Balaam came along afterwards because God wouldn't let him curse them. And he told the Moabite king, uh, Balak, he said, the way to do it is just turn all your temple prostitutes loose on the Israelites and seduce their men, and that will uh, destroy them. And so this is kind of that, that same kind of thing going on. And if you look at verse 10, uh, Malachi says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers, which f- prohibited intermarriage with the pagan population? In verse 11, he says, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loved. He has married the daughter of a foreign God. Now, when we see that phrase, the daughter of a foreign god, that isn't some light phrase. This is talking about a woman who is probably a temple prostitute, someone who is a devotee of the uh, false god in the fertility religion. And, of course, if you, this would be like your son or daughter going off to college and coming back and bringing with them someone who is a priest in the church of Satan. Okay? 
That's going to really make for wonderful conversation around the family table at Christmas and Thanksgiving and things like that. It will absolutely destroy the Christian fabric of a family, and it would destroy the spiritual fabric of the families uh, in Israel. And that's what he means. When you've married the daughter of a foreign god, they're marrying those who were devoted to uh, the Baalim and the Asherim. And he says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, uh, being awake and aware. He's knowingly going into this. Yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts? See, they're bringing their offering to um, to the false god. This is the same thing that's happening in Judges. When it says that they serve the Baalim instead of giving their tithes and offerings to God, they're robbing God. This is what Malachi talks about here, robbing the temple. You're stealing from God and you're giving your tithes and offerings to uh, the Baalim rather than to, to God and to the temple. And then in verse 13 says, This is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, weeping and crying. Uh, it's just emotionalism, and it is not true repentance. It's remorse, not repentance, and he, God doesn't regard the, your offering anymore, nor will he receive it with uh, goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? And then because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, you just threw aside the wife of your youth and you're going off with this uh, pagan prostitute uh, with whom you've dealt treacherously. She's your companion, your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? And so the purpose of this is in the next line, he seeks God, God seeks godly offspring, having children that are raised to, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, those who are raised to carry on the covenant of Israel. Uh, so Malachi warns them, therefore take heed to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. And then, just for closing on a fun note, verse 16, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for he covers one garment with violence. Now, that verse is used a lot as if it's accurately translated. However, the problem with this is that it is an extremely difficult phrase in the Hebrew, and in the NET Bible translates it this way, which probably is closer to its actual meaning. He who hates his wife and divorces her is guilty of violence. So it's not just, it's not God who's doing the hating. It is the man who is doing the hating. He hates his wife and divorces her and is guilty of violence. The Russian synodal text translates it. You ready? If you hate your wife, divorce her. Actually, there's a few English translations that have taken that, that view. The Hebrew is really, really awkward and uh, obscure. And so this is a, a difficult thing to, to work with. But I just thought I would um, uh, close on that. That's kind of a humorous thing. Uh, now, you can see what happens here because we have ex historical examples. For example, Jezebel is the daughter of the, of the high priest of, of Baal worship, uh, Itobaal, and she is his daughter. She marries Ahab and brings all of the priests of Baal and Asherah down to the northern kingdom of Israel. They're already into idolatry. Now they just get into all of the fertility worship and everything else. 
And so they have a daughter. Anybody remember her name? Athaliah. Very good. Athaliah. What does Athaliah do? They marry Athaliah off to secure an alliance with the king in Judah. And after he dies, she tries to kill all of the children. And she kills all but one who is hidden by the high priest. She's trying to destroy the seed of David so God cannot fulfill the Davidic covenant. She is a child of Satan, uh, truly, uh, carrying out his, his plan to destroy and prevent God from fulfilling his, uh, his covenants. So this is, um, this is the problem with the intermarrying with the, the Canaanites in the land. It's also a problem we have today with Christians who have children that have not been taught well and they intermarry with unbelievers. And it is just destroyed. This is something you have to start telling your kids about from the time they're old enough to understand you just don't do that. You don't have, you don't have close friends who are not Christians and you don't go date girls or date boys that if they even date anymore, uh, that are not believers. And I've told you this many times, you know what's coming. You know, my mother made it so clear to me that, you know, the first question she would ask whenever I'd come home with a new friend was, is he a believer? So I knew that anybody I came home and mentioned to my mother, I, would, I better make sure I had witnessed to them already, and they were, they were believers. And I knew that when I first started dating, that would be the first question my mother would ask me when I came home was, well, is she a believer? No, you can't go out with her if she's not a believer. And that was it. And so uh, I learned that at a at a young age because you got to get them young to learn that. You wait till they're fourteen or fifteen, forget it. It's too late. They they've already got the habit patterns down. But you've got to do it from the very beginning. Okay, next time we'll come back and we'll get into the uh, situation with the first judge, starting with uh, uh, the conquest of Kushan Rishathaim. In verse 8, Father, thank you for the opportunity to study these things this evening, to walk through these different passages that are very, and people, groups, and ethnic tribes and everything that are very rarely uh, talked about, just to understand what is going on here and how all of this fits within your overall plan and purpose from the time of Noah's prophecy related to Canaan through Abraham's covenant and all the way through its outworking in the Old Testament causing us to understand that these two, co- the covenant with Noah and the announcement towards Canaan and the covenant with Abraham are really a centerpiece for understanding the history of the human race and help us to accurately understand that. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.